Thank you to this episode's sponsor, Tai Tung Pharmacy, an Asian American business located in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to the Incluvi Movie Podcast, where we talk about all things media and diversity. I'm Matthew Stiuso. And I'm Francesca Fox. For today's podcast, we're going to be discussing the infamous media trope, the Black best friend, and how Black creators are breaking out of these tokenized stereotypes. We will also be joined by Darren Robinson, a Chicago comic and writer, who will share her perspective on the trope. Before that, we're going to get into our pop culture moment and talk about what's new and trending in entertainment. So for our last official Pride Month featurette, we want to draw attention to two trailblazing queer athletes who made a huge splash this month. Defensive tackle Carl Nassib and runner Shikari Richardson. Nassib, who plays for the Las Vegas Raiders, came out as gay this month, making him the first openly gay active NFL player. This is especially huge because compared to other industries, there is very little queer visibility in athletics. And previously, uh, NFL hopeful Michael Sam came out as gay, and many say it actually negatively impacted his chances of being drafted. Yeah, considering, you know, past bans, threats, and discrimination, it's especially noteworthy to see a lot of queer athletes actually regain some recognition for their efforts. Of course, you know, we have to celebrate Shakari Richardson, who blasted through the 100-meter dash in 10.65 seconds. Definitely watch the video. It's, like, it's just amazing to see her run. Um, and she lit the track on fire with her speed and her bright orange hair. She yes. was just all dolled up. She looked incredible. Especially on Juneteenth, of course, it was very inspiring to see this zippy queen make history. <laughs> And now she's the fastest woman in America at 21 years old. To see athletes so openly proud of their queer identity has really made our Pride Month very special. But just because it's now July, it doesn't mean we won't continue to celebrate diversity and visibility in media. One upcoming film, The Harder They Fall, trended this past week as the film tackles the Western genre with an all-black cast, an extremely rare sight in the historically white genre. Oh yeah, it's very rare indeed. And the cast actually includes very familiar faces, such as Idris Elba, Regina King, Lakeith Stanfield, who I love, Zazie Beetz, <laughs> and Jonathan Majors. So it's going to be a really great cast. Yes, for sure. Be on the lookout for The Harder They Fall to drop on Netflix later 2021. But with that being said, we will be moving on to our main topic of the day, the Black Best Friend trope. For today's episode, we are going to be dissecting an infamous media trope that has been affectionately dubbed the Black Best Friend. This trope casts Black people as supporting roles to white lead characters, and is often used as a means of diversifying a cast without actually giving Black characters their own storyline or sense of character at all. I feel like this was widespread during the 90s and the 2000s. The latter, of course, I was more exposed to as a young kid. Um, I feel like this Black best friend trope in films and television was more about the industry saying, okay, here you go. Here's diversity. Do with it what you will without actually giving a lot of these characters more dimension. 
I feel like in many ways, a lot of these black tropes, especially the mammy one, are utilized to be the cheerleader or the sidekick to the main white actor or actress. No matter what, they are there to facilitate some kind of guidance. But yet we really know nothing about their own ambitions or insecurities. Yeah, and unfortunately, this trope seems to have a certain level of versatility because it really occurs in almost every genre in different ways. Most typically, I think the key example would be high school shows and movies. Think of Dion Davenport from Clueless, who is basically like the top search for the black best friend on Google. Dion is just there to be second fiddle to share and is more of a sounding board than a, a real friend. And in the 25 years since this film, a lot of high school shows and movies have basically replicated this formula in some shape or form. High School Musical, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and recently the 2020 series on Netflix, I Am Not Okay With This, which really sparked a conversation again about the trope still being so prevalent in modern media. Ironically, people were not okay with it. I'm happy to hear it's still an an uncomfortable factor for a lot of people because, again, back when I was younger, watching Disney, Nickelodeon and such, I was like, it was just good to see Black characters on the screen. But it wasn't really much of a controversy, per se, at least in, like, Mm -hmm. my circles. Um, Although I saw how it permeated into my own world, you know, my own friends in school and like how they may have perceived me. But then of course, as one does, you grow, you fight and learn from injustices and start to, you know, actually see that a lot of these choices that are made and featured on screen are not okay. Yet it is okay to critique it, even if Mm -hmm. the character is, you know, all around quote unquote nice because we still deserve complex and multidimensional characters who aren't merely added to check the industry's diversity box, like I said. And, you know, we know it doesn't just end with the Black best friend trope. Yeah, honestly, it seems like many character archetypes are somewhat extensions of the Black best friend. You mentioned the Mammy earlier, which really serves a similar role in the sense that Mammy characters are forced to be a mentor and a friend and a wingwoman, all without really getting any storyline of their own. I mean, I'm pretty sure Hattie McDaniel in Gone with the Wind was maybe the original Black best friend. Oh my gosh, yeah, Hattie McDaniel. I always felt like her story, you know, what she had to endure in her career, where her job is literally to act in so many ways, but like very narrow, of course, roles were actually casted for Black women. And to literally be denied that accessibility, like to see your own movie or even receive your own Oscar as she was not able to do, though she is the first Black woman to have an Oscar. Um, You can't see it, but I'm shaking my head and wagging my finger that the fact that I think people forget or, you know, perhaps they choose to ignore that Hollywood's entertainment industry is foundationally racist, homophobic, Sexist. I literally could go on. And Gone with the Wind was only like, what, 82 years ago? That's no time at all when you really think about it. And where we are now comparatively, of course, yes, it is better. But this process of unlearning these tropes and like actually yielding space for growth is going to be very prominent in the coming years. 
Yeah, I mean, even in the present day, there's only ever been one black woman to win Best Lead Actress at the Oscars because they always seem to be relegated to the supporting category and forced to play supporting roles. Speaking of Hattie McDaniel again, even though she was you know, relegated to play a mammy, she broke so many barriers in playing a role that was Oscar-worthy. So it does become a question of, like, is diversity always good if the roles aren't necessarily as nuanced as they deserve? And it's impossible to say yes or no, for sure, because there is nuance, like we were mentioning. We would like nuance in shows, and there is nuance in real life. I think of shows like Brooklyn Nine-Nine or Shrill, for example, which do a good job of having a show with a white lead, but still giving black characters dimension and storyline and essentially just a life outside of their white counterparts. Fran from Shrill is such an amazing character, and to see her have her own storyline romantically and to actually push back and challenge Annie to be a better friend herself is really refreshing. And even if Fran is technically Annie's best friend who is black, I wouldn't say she is like a capital B black best friend, you know, copyright. (laughs) (laughs) No, I completely agree. Um, It's really time to get more characters like this to the forefront. And of course, in the writer's room, Mm -hmm. which I think it's the biggest difference because unfortunately a lot of these characters who are, you know, more one-dimensional, who happen to be non-white, are written by white people, um, which leaves very little room um, for their experiences to play through. And, of course, you know, it might then only be based off of these stereotypes. So definitely need the writer's room and the director's chair and everything else, of course. When we come back, we'll be joined by our friend, Chicago comedian, Darren Robinson, to share her insight on Black Best Friends in media. We're running a Facebook fundraiser to help Inclivy grow, and we'd like to thank our new key supporters, Marjorie Daria, Regina Souther, Lynn Lewis, Jennifer and Stephen Lerng, Sandy Tang, Shelly Chin, and Jewel Chin. Thanks for making a difference. This episode is sponsored by Brush Magic Kids, founded by Peter Ng. Head to brushmagickids.org to check out their K-12 scholarship program, an opportunity for young students and artists. Joining us here today is Darren Robinson, a Chicago comedy writer and actress and also a close friend of mine. She is a writer for The Onion and is currently working on her MFA in screenwriting at Northwestern University. So Darren, how's it going? Going well, Matt. Thanks for having me. So for today's interview, we are going to be discussing the classic trope maybe the infamous trope, I'll say, of the Black best friend. So in your experience, when or like how did you first become aware of the prevalence of this? Were there any specific examples? So I think I became most aware of this in watching like Disney Channel and Nickelodeon shows growing up. 
because uh, I always knew I wanted to go into entertainment one day. Uh, and so I was looking for characters who looked like me. And as I started watching more and more shows, I started realizing, oh, the characters who look like me are not always the lead character. Like thinking about, um, and every show had them. Like Rugrats had Susie Carmichael and uh, Kim Possible had Monique, who's voiced by Raven Simone. And Hey Arnold had Gerald. Um, and even as I got older, High School Musical with like Chad and Taylor, um, and then Scrubs. I was I'm a huge Scrubs fan, but like Tur- Turk, who was uh, played by Donald Faison, was like the black best friend. And so I just started realizing that in looking for myself um, in these movies and TV shows and things that I liked, like a lot of times the person I related most to just was not the main character because the main character was often uh, a white person. Mm, I definitely know what you're talking about. I also grew up in a more predominantly white area in grade school and middle school. So much of my class and social group was white. And the notion that I had to be this, you know, quote unquote, black best friend or whatever, while also, you know, being criticized for performing what their idea of black was or even talking white, it really made it difficult to navigate. So, you know, When you think about how media even affects how people perceive you, I'm curious, Darren, what ways has the Black best friend trope affected you and how you've seen yourself? Yeah, well, I was very similar background to you, Francesca, in that I grew up in predominantly white schools and many of my friends in grade school, I was their only Black friend. And so I felt like kind of a need to overperform because I also saw that a lot of these characters, which they, I guess, try to trick you with, the TV people try to trick you with, is like, oh, there's only one white character or a black character, but, you know, she's smart or she's a really good friend. She's a really good listener. Mm. Um, She's always there for her friends. Uh, She's, you know, maybe a genius like Cookie in Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide, or he's just really cool like Gerald and Hey Arnold, or uh, like Franklin and Peanuts and Charlie Brown and stuff. So like you start to realize that it's like, okay, yes, yes, these characters all have good qualities, but you never see them have bad days and you never see them go through stuff so that I kind of felt like for me and my place in the friend group, I felt like I got really good grades. I was smart. I was an exemplary, exemplary student, a really good friend. Uh, I was a good listener and people could come to me to talk about anything they wanted to talk about. But when it came my turn to have an issue, um, you know, then it was like, oh, I don't know how to respond to this or you're being selfish or, you know, I don't have time to listen to this kind of thing. And it's like, well, but I spend all my time listening to you and supporting you. But it's because that's what you see right on these shows. It's like. You know, I'm going to use High School Musical as an example, but like Chad is like the basketball bro (laughs) who's friends with Zac Efron's character. And then Taylor is like the smart black girl who's friends with Gabriella. And both of them are like both of them. Their only purpose is like we need to break them up because this singing thing is messing up 
our science club slash basketball team or whatever. Like that's their only thing though. And like, it's very weird because you see them interact throughout the movie, but in every conversation they're talking about their lead characters. And then at the end of the movie, randomly Taylor comes up to Gabrielle and is like, Chad asked me on a date. And it's like, where was that love story? This whole movie? Like it really came out of nowhere. Like, what? Yeah, they I don't never- get a song or a, or a duet or a moment no, together. No, they never get a duet. They get solos on other people's songs, but they never have a duet. You never see their love story. It's just all of their love story is like assumed and it all happens in the wings and you never really get to see it. And I get it because they are like the side characters, but I'm also just like, I wanted more from, from that. So I don't know. I just kind of felt like, I don't know. For how I was playing into that, I felt like I, too, was the friend who, like, could never have an issue, could never have anything going on in my life because I am here to just support the white people around me. And and I'm not allowed to be in a bad mood. I have to be in a good mood because I have to cheer them up. I have to make jokes for them. I have to, you know, I have to be smart and be a good student. Like, I'm not allowed to have bad days academically like it's just like a lot of it was a lot of pressure because again these people while they were a trope they had all good characteristics but it it felt like you weren't allowed to have a dark side to you or you weren't allowed to have any other thoughts or feelings (laughs) yeah in their efforts to to write good black characters they basically made them so unrealistically flawless that the expectation is nearly impossible to actually live up to. They lack nuance. It almost makes you wonder what the intention is behind the writing of these characters. And I wonder if it is a thoughtful process in casting, or is it done just to have a non-white person in a role? Yeah, so, Darren, in your opinion, is it beneficial or maybe reductive to have more Black characters in a show or a movie. Yeah, no. Even if their role is stereotypical. That's a good question cuz at first at first I think I was just so starved to see people who look like me on screen that I was like, well, any representation is good. And I could be like, oh, great, this there's a black friend in this one, there's a black friend in this other one. I feel like there's somebody here who looks like me. And again, I was like, you know, for the most part, these characters are pretty good people. Like they're dependable, they're funny, they're really cool. Or if they're really nerdy, they're really smart. And so that's cool to me. And so I thought, you know, it's a good thing that the characters who are shown on screen, at least if there's only one, it's a good person. And it's usually the person who solves the problem or has the coolest head on everything. But then as I got older, I realized that like, I think it just reinforces stereotypes of like, honestly, like a mammy or like uh, an uncle Tom or just someone like a black person who's just willing to help out the white person and, you know, is completely selfless and, you know, forgetting their own passions and ambitions. And, and you never hear about their passions or ambitions because it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. And it's also showing, like, really, for Black people, our stuff really doesn't matter. So my opinion has changed. I mean, I guess because I've seen more content that has subverted that trope, I'm like, we need more stuff like this. This should be the norm and not the exception. 
feel like Insecure is a great example of a show that does that because of how flawed the characters are allowed to be. Thinking about the depth of the characters, they don't make them, as you said, Darren, you know, perfect or lacking in substance. So it's important that we have Black characters who are flawed because that's just the reality of living in an imperfect world. And it's so great to see Black characters being in those roles on screen. Totally, totally. And I feel like that show, Insecure, and like Atlanta and Dear White People, great, great shows, uh, recent shows of late. But the reason that they've been able to subvert the tropes is because the entire cast is Black. <laughs> so it's like, okay, we're, we don't have a Black best friend trope because all of the friends are Black. And so we're able to dive into the nuance and see the differences between these different Black people who are all very much individuals but it's because we've eliminated the white gaze, really, yes. on the show. Um, not the white the, gaze. The, the, <laughs> not, the, not you, Matt, the white gaze. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you know what I mean. Like, they've eliminated just, like, the fact that white people are perceiving it, I guess, because it's created for and by and with black people. Yeah, so Darren, you are a very talented writer and a creator yourself. Do you make a conscious effort to avoid tropes in your work or do you sort of kind of treat everything with like a blank slate sort of mentality? Yeah, so I thought more about this and I feel like I write not the same kind of stuff that Shonda Rhimes writes. Obviously, she's incredible and she's more of a an hour-long drama person. I'm trying to write like half-hour comedy. Um, but for me, like same same case in that I just write characters. You know what I mean? Like I just write people. And then um, I for one short that I wrote, like I just wrote a couple. But <laughs> in the short, like we went out and we tried to just cast anyone like we took actors of all colors to read for it and the two actors who got the lead parts it was just because they were the best people for the role um but we were we were looking just for a lot of diversity because we were just like anyone i write stuff in a way that anyone can do it um but i always actively try to seek out opportunities for people of color to be in those roles like what you're talking about in terms of that kind of casting it reminds me specifically of an interview that Candace Patton had done about the flash where she talks about them casting her as Iris West a traditionally white character um but when they sort of wrote her character in with a black actress they didn't really change like a little like minute things about her character that would make it make sense for her to be played by a black person and she always talks specifically about like their family has a noodle recipe that's like their kind of like go-to thing and she's like this is not true to like my experience as a black person at all like they didn't like change the kind of culture that we would have around the house like we would never have this kind of dish like it would just be more meaningful to me if they would at least have changed the dish to something that like other black people could identify with no i think that's interesting i think that i think that yes like after you cast an actor you need to be conscious about things like that like mindy kaling has a show never have i ever 
which is incredible on Netflix. I think it's the next the second season is coming out pretty soon. But what I do like about that show, too, is that like the three, uh, the main character and her two best friends are all women of color. But all the characters have their own issues that they're dealing with. That's just about being a teenager. But it also is so sensitive in the way that like the main character, Davy, with her family is they have their Indian traditions, you know, the food that they're eating, you know, her aunties and, and everything that happens like in her family is like very Indian American. But she's also dealing with juggling boys in school and all of these other things. And yeah, I think I agree with what you were saying earlier about like the first three character traits that you name about a character should be about them and not about their identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your focus on not hyperfixating on trauma and oppression as the main focus of your stories really resonates with me personally. And I've experienced these conversations play out in my community with Black friends and collaborators also expressing the desire to see more Black joy when it seems like so often a lot of media coming out is, you know, fixed on Black pain. And a lot of it is to remember and educate. But I also think that, you know, alongside of that, there can be laughter and especially triumph. Absolutely. I, there, I love this movie. There's a movie called Waves uh, by A24. Uh, it's an incredible movie, but I feel like a lot of it's, it centers on a black family. It's like it's very much just like a family and coming of age drama but the main characters happen to be black. And I think that's awesome. And I I like more of that because I feel like, you know, a lot of the movies about us are like set in slavery or civil rights movement. And it's like, we've had, we've had so many other things happen (laughs) and that continue to happen um, outside of our pain and outside of us just being the side character to help the white person as well. Yeah, Darren, Thank you so much for joining us for this interview. And you've mentioned a lot of projects. So is there anything that you want to plug while we are here right now for our listeners to find you at? Yeah. So I'm in a monthly show. It's called The After Dark Show. It happens Saturday nights at 1130 at the Lincoln Lodge once a month. So it's the first Saturday of every month. Our next show is coming up on July 3rd which will be great. And then we'll have one in early August. So if you can't make this month, we're there every month. And then in late August, uh, in early September, I will be doing my conservatory six shows at Second City, which are the graduate shows for their conservatory program. Um, And that's uh, a run of eight shows in late August and early September. So that's what I have coming up. (laughs) So Darren, for our non-Chicago-based listeners, because we, I mean, we have listeners all over the world. Where can they find you? Yes. So you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Darren. That's D-A-R-Y-N underscore the number two dream. I also have a website, DarrenRobinson.com. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This episode of the Incluvian Movie Podcast was hosted by Francesca Fox and me, Matthew Stiuso. Our show is produced and edited by Hazel Bolivar. Our executive producer is Kathy Yee. Special thanks to Darren Robinson for joining us. Our theme music is made by Waterboy. 
You can visit Incluvi.com to rate movies on their diversity and read reviews focused on representation in media. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Incluvi. That's I-N-C-L-U-V-I-E. Thank you so much for joining us for the first season of the Incluvi Movie Podcast. I am so proud of the work that we've done this season, and it's really meant a lot to know that we have listeners all over the world. We will be coming back on August 5th for season two with more episodes, more guests, and more Incluvi Movie Pod. I hope you enjoyed our show. I'm Kathy Yee, founder of Incluvi, and I would like to give a special shout out to our Incluvi team and advisors for helping to make the magic happen. Robert Balchunas, Heather Jang, Hazel Boulevard, Matthew Stioso, Sydney Hayes, Marissa Jones, John Ho, and Michael Bertal. I also want to give a big thank you to our movie critics and writers. Your passion makes a great difference for diversity in film and social impact.